a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us as we uh, launch off into another expedition into wrong think. It's a lot of fun. You never know what you're going to find, but I can promise you this. I've got some great information to share with you today that hopefully will empower, enlighten, and inform you. Rather than just leave you feeling uh, angrier or more fearful or more helpless in the face of all the changes taking place around us. Seriously, I'm glad you're here, and, and I hope you'll understand I spend as little time as possible talking about political figures and political goings-on. Not that there's any shortage of coverage. There are plenty of people who will cover this, you know, endlessly. We've got some serious problems, many of them political in nature, but a lot of the solutions that we're looking for aren't going to be found within that political arena. So let's dive right in. As we get uh, things underway today, just want to mention I've got great sponsors who make this program possible. In fact, let me take just a moment here and just explain. Um, This program and others like it um, are the result of, of, well, people like me answering what what I believe is a calling. And, And I don't mean like God told me, go and speak to the people. I do feel like, though, this is... This is what I was put on earth to do, and that is to to speak the truth as best I understand so that people can make up their own minds. And in a time of almost universal deceit, I'm sorry, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here. Our, uh, our mass media and most of the mass media organizations do not exist for the purpose of keeping you informed and acting as a free press, you know, a check on government and holding people accountable for their exercise of power. They don't. They're more of a narrative manager, more of a spinmeister. They're they're there to control how people think about things generally. And they're very good at it. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, the, the goal of journalism was to be as objective as possible, to leave emotions and labels and judgments out of the story. Just give people the facts, let them make up their own minds. That's how it used to be. It's not so anymore. As a class, much of what we call journalism in America is simply arrogant, untruthful, and very, very wedded to power. They're there to enable the people in power to, to be able to do whatever they want to do and provide cover for it. You see this a lot in the, in the reporting on, on COVID statistics, for instance. So there have to be alternate sources. I'm one alternate source, a very small alternate source at that. But it's because of sponsors like Monticello College and LifesavingFood.com and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, as well as the support of individual listeners like you, that I'm able to do what I do. And the more I can focus my time and my efforts and my moral energy on finding the best information that I can then pass along to you and hopefully do so in a way that's that's productive and not just getting you riled up, well, the happier I am and hopefully the better off you are. So thanks to all who helped make this show possible. Let's dive right in. In fact, since we're talking about statistics and, you know, what's what's going on with COVID-19, 
It's getting pretty tough to believe the folks who claim that it's necessary right now to push for even more intense lockdowns, more mandates. I see this especially in pushing masks on kids in school. We've got to do this. Why? We have to do something. And and I have to think, okay, there may be some sincere people who are doing their best in the face of a disease, an illness that has definitely made its impact known, but at the same time may have been exaggerated in some instances because we're very selective, or at least the press in America and and in other first world nations is extremely selective in how it goes about reporting. Everything has to be in the most stark terms possible. Nothing good can come outside of the official narrative Ivermectin, well, that's just horse paste, and, you know, people shouldn't do it. It's dangerous. And yet uh, you look at a country like India, where ivermectin has been widely prescribed to a vast majority of the population, and, huh, interesting, COVID isn't running rampant through there. They're able to treat it more effectively. Now, John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says, you know, this, this pushing for intense COVID lockdowns, it's it's hard to believe that it's necessary when there are real-world examples like Denmark, where cases are down 60% since the government lifted all COVID restrictions. Oh, you hadn't heard about that? Isn't that strange? Isn't that odd? You would think that uh, that would merit some kind of a mention. John Miltimore says on September 3rd, Denmark lifted all of its COVID restrictions, becoming the very first country in the European Union to do so. Now, at the time, Denmark had achieved a fully vaccinated rate of 73% in adults. That's a figure well below target set by U.S. National Institutes of Health Director Dr. Anthony Fauci, but still slightly higher than the European average. Now, even though Denmark had achieved a 96% fully vaccinated rate in the key 50 and older demographic, there was still uncertainty surrounding Denmark's decision to lift COVID restrictions. Will the lifting of restrictions go well? Who knows, tweeted Michael Bang-Peterson, a scientist who advised Denmark and led the country's largest behavioral COVID-19 project. He said new variants may emerge and restrictions reappear, yet from a behavioral perspective, I am optimistic about the future. And interestingly enough, there's a a couple of nice tweets from Michael Bang-Peterson that uh, are included within uh, this, this story. So it's been three weeks, and John Miltimore says, since, uh, since Denmark lifted those restrictions three weeks ago, we've had long enough to get the first glimpse of results from the Danish government's decision. Now, remember, Harvard researchers say the incubation period of the virus is 2 to 14 days, with the symptoms typically appearing within 4 or 5 days of exposure. So you ready to hear how things have been going in Denmark, where all COVID restrictions have been lifted? Well, so far, the results are promising. And then some. On September 3rd, Denmark's three-day rolling average of cases was 739. On September 21st, the rolling three-day average was, or the three-day rolling average was 288. In other words, Denmark, Denmark didn't see a surge in cases after lifting all restrictions. In fact, to the contrary, their cases fell by 60%. Oh, and deaths also remain low. And meanwhile, CNN reports there's been no noticeable increase in hospitalizations. Now, John Miltimore points out, look, these results are preliminary, to be sure. 
It's quite possible that cases in Denmark will increase if new variants emerge or the Delta variant flares up again. But he says the results are also highly encouraging. And they buttress the arguments of those who've contended that many of the restrictions lawmakers have put in place throughout the pandemic have been ineffective at taming the virus, but harmful to public health, learning, and the economy. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, for example, a professor at Stanford University Medical School, has called the lockdowns the biggest public health mistake we've ever made. Well, he doesn't mince words, does he? The harm to people is catastrophic, said Bhattacharya. Now, less invasive mitigations like mask mandates come with less severe intended consequences, including potential learning development issues and traumatic experiences for deaf people unable to communicate. But they also appear to be equally effective, ineffective rather, in mitigating the spread of the virus. And this brings us to the idea that when it comes to a policy, Look, they're always going to state the best intentions. Well, this policy is going to eliminate poverty in our lifetime. This is going to eliminate racism in our lifetime. This is going to eliminate hunger, whatever the case may be. But you can't judge policies by their intentions. You have to judge them by their results. Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman famously warned against the modern propensity to pass policies based on how they make us feel as opposed to what they actually achieve. Here's how he put it. He said, one of the great mistakes is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than their results. We all know a famous road that's paved with good intentions. And the people who go around talking about their soft heart, well, I admire them for the softness of their heart. But he says, unfortunately, it extends to their head as well. End quote. Now, Friedman wasn't just having some fun at the expense of his ideological opponents. He was highlighting a very real problem, one that's been revealed time and time again in the coronavirus pandemic. Americans and their political leaders, like many around the world, believed they could vanquish or contain or even slow the coronavirus if they just centrally planned hard enough. Unlike previous pandemics, they unleashed the power of the state to that end. And you know what? They failed miserably. Some nations, such as Denmark, are finally coming to grips with this reality. We'll have to come back to this in just a moment, but again, this is from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. He has been such an incredible voice of reason and objectivity in reporting on COVID policies. Strongly recommend it. It's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I've been sharing an article here from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. Cases are down 60% in Denmark. Isn't that good news? Can we all agree? Should we just take a minute here and nod our heads? Yeah. 60% reduction in cases in their rolling three-day average. Oh, that's good. Oh, wait, what's this? There's, there's some fine print there. After Denmark lifts all COVID restrictions. What? what? How could this be? We'll get back to John Miltimore's article here in just a moment. I do want to mention that uh, we are coming up fast on the end of National Preparedness Month. 
I don't know if you knew, but September is National Preparedness Month. And uh, as you're going to see through the course of today's program, this is really a good time to be prepared. My goal here is not to scare you. I don't want you feeling panicky at all. But if you are preparedness-minded, if you've been taking steps to shore up your self-reliance, you are going to be very grateful. And it's not because the four horsemen of the apocalypse are right on the edge of town and getting ready to ride through, laying waste to everything. It's a matter of look at the costs of everything in the grocery store. Look at how food costs are going up. Wouldn't it be great if you could sock away a long-term supply of food? I'm talking 25-year shelf life. Well, here's the good news. You can, through my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com, and for a limited time, meaning through the 25th of September, you can take 20% off the cost of your order by using my name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code. It's very simple. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please take advantage of this. Please consider what they have to offer, whether you're looking for uh, milk buckets, vegetable buckets, uh, meat buckets, you know, survival kits, or maybe even just, uh, you know, starter food kits. This is a great time to shore up your preparedness, and this is a great time to save 20% in the process. Get the details in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, but hurry, this offer is good only through September 25th. So cases are down 60% in Denmark after the government lifted all COVID restrictions. Isn't that something? Denmark is free today of COVID restrictions, though not free of COVID-19. But John Miltimore says the reason it's free of COVID restrictions is because Danish leaders arrived at the prudent and sensible conclusion that Danes must live with the coronavirus, which cannot be defeated or extinguished through central planning. Let's hope that American leaders and nations recognize this truth and follow the path that Denmark has forged. Sweden is another country that has followed a similar path here. They didn't lock it down. They didn't put a mask on everybody. And they didn't, I don't think, I, I don't know. I guess I'd have to go there to see this for myself. I don't think they've had the kind of division that we keep seeing here. My wife and I actually were having this conversation last night. And it's probably a good conversation to have because she and I are not on the same page on on some of these issues. You know, she she wonders sometimes, "Am am I just being contrary by not getting the vaccine, by not wanting to wear a face mask wherever possible? And it's possible that I'm wrong. You know, I have to admit that. There's... There's a real possibility. Maybe I'm seeing this totally wrong. I don't think that's the case, though. I don't believe it's the case. I'm open to new information, but I do hate the division that comes with this. And, you know, it's 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 tough because fear is such an ever-present factor in any discussion like this. People who sit back and watch the news and get their their information on the outside world from one of the, the mainstream or mass media sources, more often than not are going to be very fixated on, oh, how scary this is, how terrible it is. The hospitals are filled to overflowing. The doctors are overworked and so forth. I don't doubt there are elements of truth in these stories, but I do not believe they are the whole truth. I think that they are being reported in such a way that it shades the truth. That's very concerning for me. 
And what's concerning, too, is how many doctors go along with the COVID panic porn and the CDC's recommendations and and, uh, prescriptions. In fact, let me give you an example of what this looks like. I'm just going to give you a little audio example here. Um, This is a Canadian doctor who apparently believes so strongly that uh, the people who aren't getting vaccinated are the cause of of whatever woes we're facing, that uh, it sounds like she's willing to absolutely turn her back on the Hippocratic Oath. She says the unvaccinated should be completely denied an ICU and medical care for any injury and sickness, even if it's not COVID. So if you're unvaxxed, you're in a car wreck, well, you're on your own with this doctor. Listen to how she puts it. This is kind of chilling. Oh, guys, I am just fuming over the fact that our health care system has collapsed. I truly hope that in Alberta, if someone comes into the ICU and they are unvaccinated for any reason other than a medical exemption because of, of whatever reasons they've been given. Um, and if there's a 90-year-old who comes in who's vaccinated and a 20-year-old that comes in that's unvaccinated for no reason other than their arrogance and ignorance, I truly hope that the bed goes to the 90-year-old. I do not know why in any world that has any justice, we are going to lose people who've done their civil duty, who have actually gotten vaccinated to try to protect people regardless of their age. We will lose them over the people who couldn't give a about anyone but themselves. And literally we're laughing at the fact that the, evac- the pro-vaxxers were going so crazy over this. Sure, you know what then? You get sick with anything. I don't even care if it's not COVID related. You don't deserve an ICU bed. We're at that point. Man, I am pissed. <sighs> well done, Alberta. I hope this... Wow. 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 Yeah, I mean, if you can't see the societal sickness in this, and if you can't recognize that much of the populace now thinks that uh, thinks like like her, you may you may be part of the problem. Where does that kind of fear come from? Where does that kind of detachment from reality come from? Hippocratic Oath, man. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who've worked in the medical industry who continually are working in the medical industry. They've cared for people from all different walks of life and circumstances. Some people have made incredibly foolish decisions, and they would work like crazy to save their lives. Suicide attempts. And the doctors and nurses will work like like the world depends on it to try to save that person's life. But now we have this politicized illness, and you have people saying, you know what? If it comes down to, you know, getting giving you a hospital bed versus someone who did what they were told, who did their civic duty, we'll give it to the to the good person. You're on your own. There's a great article from a medical doctor by the name of Ted Noel. This is on AmericanThinker.com. Why do doctors go along with COVID panic porn and CDC prescriptions? And Ted Noel says, I recently had a conversation with a reasonably well-informed writer who simply missed the real reasons why most practicing physicians go along with the Fauci fraud. So he says, as a public service, I'm going to try to fill in a few gaps. But first, he says, I have to define the fraud. So there are two basic legs to the fraud. The first is the idea that the Centers for Disease Control is in any way concerned with a mission related to its name. The failure of the CDC to endorse any treatment that did not emanate from its exalted halls should give us our first glint of clarity. There are literally millions of physicians around the world, and the great bulk of them truly wish to treat their patients well. 
Among those are thousands of researchers, a number far in excess of those at the CDC, the National Institute of Health, and other alphabet soup government agencies. He says the very idea that outside researchers are incapable of discovering anything useful without the help of bureaucrats in D.C. is hubris of the highest order. And it prevents the CDC, the FDA, or any other such agency from considering the idea that just possibly there might be intelligent life down here. In other words, Mount Olympus cannot be threatened. Now we'll talk about the second leg of the fraud, just the other side of our commercial messages. Why do so many people within the medical establishment just go along? Some of them, I'm sure, it's a fear of, look, we either do this or we lose our jobs. Does that make it right? Hmm. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Showing an article here from Dr. Ted Noel. He is a medical doctor. It's entitled, Why Do Doctors Go Along with COVID Panic Porn and CDC Prescriptions? And he explains that it's because there are two basic legs to the kind of fraud that is currently being pushed upon us. He says, um, let's, let's talk about the Fauci fraud. The first leg of it is the idea that outside researchers cannot find anything useful without the help of bureaucrats in D.C. But he says the second leg of this fraud is less visible to the naked eye, but it's much more powerful. He says, if I wrote this before I retired, I would be called before the board of my group and told in no uncertain terms to shut up. He says, I might even be assessed a financial penalty with several zeros after the one. that's a serious impairment of my pursuit of happiness. But he says the reason for my group's dislike is more than the fact that uh, I might be an irritant. He says they may actually agree with what I have to say, but they simply cannot afford for me to say it. That's right. As a practicing physician in a group, my freedom of speech can become very expensive to the group. Now, he says my group cared for patients of all descriptions, with roughly half of them on Medicare and another batch on Medicaid. Both programs are ultimately managed by the feds, one of the most humorless groups on the planet. They write a whole bunch of rules on how you have to document everything you do. If you didn't document it correctly, it didn't happen and you won't get paid. But that's not the half of it. Suppose you have one of those patients brought in by the ambulance from under the bridge. His clothes are the only ones he's wearing. He doesn't have two nickels to rub together. It's more than obvious that this surgery for bowel obstruction will be a charity case. Now, before Medicare, you'd simply write it off as your good neighbor duty, but now you don't get a choice. CMMS, the actual administrative agency, requires you to send a bill twice, maybe three times, whatever it takes to turn that bill into bad debt. Then you have to send it to a collection agency, and your only only alternative is for your group to bring it up in its board meeting and declare it a write-off that gets noted in the minutes. Now, Dr. Noel says all this rigmarole serves no purpose, and you knew that before you got to this sentence. But he says CMMS has a sinister side. If you do the case for free, which you did before you spent that useless money on billing and collection, CMMS will define that as your usual and customary bill 
for an exploratory laparotomy. Since UNC, since your UNC is now zero, you can't ever bill more than that for an X-lap in the future. Well, what does that have to do with ivermectin? Dr. Noel says, I'm glad you asked. UNC bills are just one of hundreds of rules that CMMS enforces. Another one is pay for performance. Basically, pay for performance requires you to check a host of boxes when taking care of patients. If you didn't get that IV antibiotic in 20 minutes before the incision, you failed pay for performance and you may not get paid. The hospital won't get paid to take care of the patient if there's a complication. So let's suppose that you use ivermectin to treat a COVID patient as he arrives in the hospital. Well, ivermectin isn't on the Medicare, Medicaid-approved list of medications for COVID. Your hospital pharmacy will call you up and give you grief. And after wasting a lot of time getting them to finally let you have it, you've had to cancel half of your office day. The next day, you'll get a visit from a coder who will tell you that you didn't use the approved treatment protocol and put the hospital in jeopardy because you flunked payment for performance. By the way, that coder is the person who helps you use the proper ICD or billing code for whatever the patient has in order for the hospital to make the most money. But that's not the worst of it. Because you flunked payment for or pay for performance, that waves a red flag in front of the other CMMS bulls and you're about to get gored. They will wonder, well, what other bad things have you done? And as soon as they find one, it's going to get flagged as Medicare fraud. And they will bill you for twice what you got paid as a penalty. Now, can you guess how many other instances of fraud they'll find if they look hard? Do you have to ask why my partners would get upset if I published while I was still in practice? By the way, CMMS can go back two years as they look for your crimes. They can ultimately take your house, your car, and your wife's poodle while they're at it. So let's change the scene. Suppose you're in private practice. You can't give ivermectin because the feds will key in on it if your patient's on Medicare or Medicaid. So you decide to take care of him off the books. He pays you cash and all is well. Not. You now took a private payment for Medicare-covered service. That will get you barred from seeing another Medicare patient for two years. Are you following all this? He says, let's forget all the regulatory traps. You're conscientious. You try to do the best for your patients, but you're busy and you can't keep up with the flood of papers on all the various COVID bits. So you wear a mask, you have your patients wear masks, and you do a lot of telemedicine. You keep up on the latest through Medscape and the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reporter. You should be good. Not MMWR is put out by the CDC and they won't say the first good word about hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. Medscape's a little better, but not much. And with all the specialty societies towing the line, can you guess why? Ted Noel says, any doctor who actually reads the studies or follows any of the protocols published by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons will see a lot of peer pressure to stop. The financial risks may be extreme, and it takes a spine of steel to stand up to the authoritarian orthodoxy. Now, this is a retired anesthesiologist and intensivist who's speaking here. This is not just, you know, some guy shaking his fist at the computer and saying, I think everybody's wrong. Isn't that crazy? I've had this conversation with doctors over the years. 
I don't spend a lot of time in hospital or, uh, you know, in Instacare. But one day, while cooking hamburgers, I was prying apart some frozen hamburger patties and managed to uh, slice my thumb open right to the bone. It uh, It was really quite spectacular, one of my better injuries. So I had to go get stitches. And I had the most revealing conversation with this wonderful doctor. She was the one sewing me up there at uh, at Instacare. And one of the things we talked about was what has happened to the practice of medicine since the government became so deeply involved. We're talking primarily the federal government. Medicare and Medicaid, as Dr. Ted Noel explains, you know, has the, the whole prospect of you got to bill this like this and it has to be this way and we can come back and punish you for Medicaid fraud if, if we don't think you did it the way that we like. But it was more, her frustration was more along the lines of the, the central planning just doesn't take into account the actual needs of the patients. And she said, if you really want to see where this, this socialized medicine model leads, she said one of the VA hospitals might be a good example. And the example that she gave me was, she said, for instance, someone needs uh, an MRI. But they only will allow, because of this top-down centralized planning, they will only allow a certain number of MRIs per day. So the machine may be perfectly available, but according to the protocols and according to you know the, the plan, the central planning, we can only do this many. So if there's one patient, maybe they've traveled for hours or days to get to the hospital and to to receive that MRI. If you hit the allotment before you get to them, even if they're the only patient remaining, and if there's time to do it, you still would have to tell them, nope, we can't do it. And she said it's it's tremendously frustrating. And she's a fairly experienced doctor. She was not just, you know, a young intern fresh out of med school and you know, just kind of, you know, getting getting the shine off of her stethoscope. This doctor had been around the block a few times, and I've heard this from other doctors as well. Now, Dr. Bryan's uh, unprofessional analysis is, I don't think it's a matter so much of, you know, the doctors are gullible or they're authoritarian. I think the problem is we have allowed way too much commingling, <clears throat> excuse me, of medicine and government. Before government became so deeply involved in medicine, before it co-opted so much of the healthcare industry, doctors had more freedom to treat patients and to, to, to work without that bureaucratic oversight and that, that bureaucratic sort of Damocles hanging over their heads, just waiting for them to make some paperwork mistake. Oh, and the paperwork itself. Medical coding. I recall a few years ago when a doctor friend of mine, uh, his, his office was going through a transition because uh, the whole medical coding system was being updated. To say it was cumbersome would be an understatement. It would be like saying, you know, porcupines can be a little bit uh, prickly if you're not careful. No, it's, it's huge the amount of time and effort and energy it took to train his staff just on how to enter the proper code so that the, the medical establishment, you know, the, their office could handle the billing. Because if you don't get it right, you get this cascading effect of, well, we'll have to deny this payment. And anyway, it snowballs into a big problem. But the bigger problem is the bureaucracy, the central planning. Maybe that's where we should start looking. It starts with a correct diagnosis. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are located in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. But if you are hearing this message anywhere within the state of Utah, especially if you are looking for a traditional mortgage or a reverse mortgage or a VA loan, well, you should talk to Heather. Right now, it's an incredibly intense real estate market. Competition is very fierce. Every home that comes on the market is being very fiercely competed for. So you've got to have your financing in order. You can't uh, dilly-dally around and, and just, well, we'll take our time and see if, you know, any good offers come in. The offers are coming in. You've got to have your funding squared away. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They can get you the loan you need at the best rates possible. But most importantly, they can make it happen quickly because time is of the essence. Call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her MLS ID is 715386 And keep in mind that Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. If you want to drop her an email, there's actually a nice link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I love when I see a a commentary published by uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano. I think, uh, you know, whatever people think of the judge, you know, and and sometimes I disagree with him, but for the most part, I think he is, is one of the better informed public figures out there on the media circuit when it comes to understanding what the Constitution is and what the proper limits are of of legitimate government. Unfortunately, we live in a time where government pretty much does whatever it wants, and if it needs to twist the Constitution with a little help from its pals in the Supreme Court, it'll do that. And as much as it pains me to say this, I don't think the Constitution poses any kind of a serious threat to the aspirations and ambitions of many members of the political class. Judge Napolitano has an excellent commentary on voluntary servitude. And the key thing to remember here is that when it comes to tyranny, it's not a matter of it just simply being imposed on us. Hey, pick up that can, citizen, or else. We have to consent if we're going to live under tyranny. That's right. You have the ability to say no. Now, will it include consequences? Possibly. That's why a lot of people don't say no. But the Constitution can only limit government's influence so much. The rest of it's up to us and understanding what voluntary servitude is. Judge Napolitano says two weeks ago, President Biden announced his intention to order the Department of Labor to compel all employers of more than 100 persons to require all of their employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or be fined $14,000 per day for each unvaccinated employee, and the Department of Labor will collect the fines. Now, Biden's legal advisors probably informed him that the federal government is without authority to compel individuals directly to receive vaccinations. And if it were, the compulsion would need to come from Congress, which writes the laws, not from the president who enforces them. But the same advisors no doubt told the president that the feds are possessed of authority to tell employers whose businesses affect interstate commerce how to run their businesses. For a government that can't pay its own bills without borrowing $2 trillion a year, 
that can't comply with the regulations it imposes on the rest of us and that can't follow the constitutions its office the constitution its officers have sworn to uphold it's a sick joke that it can second guess management of private businesses so by using private businesses to enforce his dictates is the president doing indirectly what the constitution prohibits the federal government from doing directly that's a good question so here's the backstory Judge Napolitano says the federal government is one of limited powers, limited to what the Constitution delegates to it. Now, one might not know this if one is not engaged in serious study of the Constitution and the history of its torturous treatment by Congress and the Supreme Court, as it appears today that nearly everything is regulated by the feds. He says, I once asked five of my smart colleagues on live television to look around the studio and see if they could find anything not regulated by the feds. From the lights illuminating us, to the clothes we were wearing, to the equipment that was broadcasting us, to the furniture upon which we all sat, he says none of my colleagues could find anything unregulated by the feds. Now his point is all those regulations were enacted or authorized by Congress. None was from a dictate by the president. The limitations on the federal government are written in the Constitution and in its amendments, But whenever it wants to do so, Congress has exceeded those limitations. And the courts have almost always upheld Congress. So what was written to enable Congress to keep interstate commerce regular is now so twisted that Congress can regulate all activity that uses money, even that which is not commercial, even that which is not interstate, even that which is so infinitesimal as to be economically immeasurable. Stated differently, the Supreme Court has so obsequiously deferred to Congress when it comes to interstate commerce that the court has permitted Congress to do what the Constitution was written to prevent it from doing, regulating private property. But in some areas, like speed limits on highways or the blood alcohol content of drivers sufficient to justify a DWI prosecution, even Congress has recognized its lack of authority. So the congressional solution is you bribe the states. Thus, Congress offered hundreds of millions of dollars to the states to repay federal highways if they lowered both their speed limits and the maximum blood alcohol content of their drivers before DWI prosecutions were indicated. And the Supreme Court upheld this under the spending power of Congress. Stated differently, while Congress cannot regulate every area of human endeavor, it can spend federal dollars on any area of human endeavor. And it can attach strings to those expenditures. When South Dakota told Congress it would take its money to repave the highways but won't lower the speed limits on them, the Supreme Court sided with Congress. You want the cash? You get it with the strings. You don't want the strings? You can reject the cash. Now, the same is the case with respect to Congress's power to tax. While Congress cannot order me to eat broccoli, it can tax me if I don't. Now, back to private employers enforcing a rule written by the president. The spending and taxing power can only be employed by legislation. Congress, and only Congress, can do indirectly what it cannot do directly, and it can only do so by offering cash for compliance or imposing taxes for noncompliance. In the case of Biden's Department of Labor mandates, there is no cash offered or tax threatened, as only Congress could do so. Rather, a penalty is threatened, which only the courts can impose after a trial. Thus, the president, who cannot write laws or impose sanctions, may not lawfully do indirectly what he cannot do directly. 
So why doesn't Biden ask Congress for legislation compelling vaccines? Well, Napolitano says, first, it wouldn't pass Congress. Second, Congress would need to compensate employers for administering this Orwellian surveillance or pay for federal employees to administer vaccine. Either way, he points out there is no political will in Congress or constitutional authority for it to tell ordinary Americans that they must put an experimental drug into their arms. Can the president compel employers to enforce a federal program at their own expense? In a word, no. The 13th Amendment prohibits involuntary servitude. Compelling persons and entities to work against their will and without just compensation is the definition of involuntary servitude, otherwise known by its more descriptive name, slavery. Now, Judge Napolitano says one can see the utter disregard the Biden administration has for constitutional norms. It wants the president, not Congress, to write rules of personal and corporate behavior. It wants the Department of Labor, not the courts, to be judge and jury when those rules are disregarded. It wants private persons and entities to work for the federal government against their will and with no compensation, in violation of the 13th Amendment. And he says all of this can happen only if we let it. But because the 13th Amendment only prohibits involuntary servitude, the feds can surely enslave us when we are timid enough to consent. See how we kind of put it right back on our shoulders? I understand government's going to government. We're going to, with this, with these laws and these regulations, we're going to make the world a perfect place. Yeah, you want to talk about some utopian fantasy, there it is. But none of it can happen without you and I bowing our heads and saying, okay, I'll do it. Please stop beating me. I'll do it. Look, I'm not trying to tell you you've got to be some kind of a wild-eyed radical out there, you know, pushing back against anything that anybody asks of you. But don't you think it would be in your interest to at least distinguish between those things that are legitimate requests made by someone with legitimate authority and those which are merely bureaucrats insisting that you do something, whether it's in your interest or not? You do have a choice. And I think we're rapidly approaching the point where the people who choose not to do as they're told are the only ones who are going to retain any measure of freedom, at least in the short term. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you could join me today. I am here to engage in wrong think and to chew bubblegum. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Sorry. I wish I could give you the direct quote from uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper from They Live, but close enough. Hey, our show is brought to you by great sponsors by like uh, MonticelloCollege.org and also by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and also by LifesavingFood.com. 
I know that uh, this is this has been a very interesting time, and people who are preparedness minded hopefully have been very consistent in uh, staying with their preps and you know topping off wherever they need to. We're going to talk in this hour about the the uh, upcoming hike in prices that you're going to be seeing. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Here's what I want you to remember. It's National Preparedness Month, and in honor of National Preparedness Month, my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com, is offering 20% off to my listeners when they make a purchase. You have to use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout in order to get that 20% discount. And this is only good through September 25th. So you may want to get a jump on this. I mean, if you are looking for a starter food kit like the Prepper Pack, 52 servings of of great-tasting, freeze-dried and dehydrated foods ready in minutes when you just add water, and nice stackable buckets with an easy grab-and-go handle. This Prepper Pack, 52 servings, it's only $99.99. Minus 20% if you use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. I've got links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I'd be quite honored if you would take a look at it and do business with them. You might even sleep better at night knowing that uh, you've got some extra set aside for that rainy day, which uh, may or may not be right there on the horizon. So to start out today, or to start out this hour, um, as hard as this may be to accept, I think a lot of people are finally coming to the realization that, uh, you know what, the landscape around us has changed. I have struggled with this personally. There is a shift that has taken place in the last year and a half, and we all want to believe it was just temporary, right? Oh, you know, it'll get back to normal. We're going to be back to normal one of these days. If everybody just gets the shot, if everybody will just mask up, if we can just stop COVID, it's all going to go back to normal, but it's not. And I'm sorry if that's if that dashes your hopes. I'm not trying to make you feel sad or helpless. I'm just telling you the shift has taken place, and what was before was. What comes next, I don't know. It's still in the process of settling out and shaking out. And uh, you and I still have great influence. And so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, don't, don't give up and don't, I wouldn't say you should, should just, you know, go with whatever. But understand, the shift has taken place. And as hard as it may be to accept, many of the familiar institutions of Western civilization have either been altered at this point or, in some cases, done away with. Paul Rosenberg who I always find to be a great source of of rational information, talks about uh, what remains in the public square. In fact, he calls this an outline of post-Western civilization. And I think it's worth considering, just from the standpoint of, you want to get your bearings? you got to be willing to look around and see where you are. And, you know, this is how we stay on course. We have to know where we are first, you know, before we can plot that true course to whatever destination we hope to head to. And Paul Rosenberg says, look, Western civilization is over. It may live on in some of us, but at the public level, it has been replaced. And he says, every major institution seems to have thrown in with the new civilization. So the question facing us then is, what is this, is, is what this new civilization is going to be like? And so with the usual caveats, he says, here are the essential components of the new boss post-Western civilization. He starts with governance. Now, as far as governance, he says, democracy may remain as a sort of talisman 
but fewer and fewer changes of power will be forthcoming. Already, Europe is controlled by unelected apparatchiks, and the United States is ruled by executive order. Canada has perhaps been worse, and Australia has very definitely been worse. And resistance has been minimal. Public information has been censored. Police forces have been willing to enforce almost anything. Next, we have commerce. Stakeholders, by which he means giant corporations, states, and a few others, have taken control. Small businesses have been destroyed en masse, and the middle class has been hollowed out. Commerce and state are no longer separated. Next, he tackles debt. Now, debt would normally be considered part of commerce, but over the past two decades, it has been universally available, and Westerners have used it to maintain an illusion of prosperity. And this has left them unable to resist a usurping civilization. To put it simply, Westerners have been silenced by a variant of Coach Lombardi's dictum, debt makes cowards of us all. Then he comes to property. Home ownership is now passé. All ownership is passé. The houses of America are being bought up by pension funds, hedge funds, and giant corporations, a.k.a. stakeholders. The burden of property is no longer something for the people to bear. They are expected to rent everything. Which brings us to law. Post-Western civilization features the pre-Christian model of two legal classes. Now bear in mind that the Greek and Roman names for these classes were citizens and slaves, but the new model employs the terms stakeholders and people. But the difference is almost entirely semantic. Once you have two separate legal classes with different obligations and privileges, slavery is more or less a given, especially once the concept of profit has been demonized. Now, certainly the word slavery will not be used, but stakeholders will be privileged and people will not. Already the spokesmen for post-Western civilization are saying, you'll own nothing and be happy. In other words, the new boss will be very much like the ancient boss. Which brings us to public rhetoric. Convincing masses of people that your ideas ought to be followed is essential to every civilization. And post-Western civilization has moved to a new model of public rhetoric. Now, as we've seen, that model is outrage. Facebook and Twitter broadcast the call. A thousand surplus intellectuals find clever ways to demonize the designated heretics, and the group coalesces around that which they hate. This is why, among other things, racism is back, but this time in whiteface. And it's driven by outrage, which routes around both tolerance and reason. Next, education. Quality in education, he says, is pretty well over. Lockdown schooling is a failure, which is useful if you like unchallenged power. But for the moment, homeschooling and private education remain, but he says eventually the system will turn its attention toward them, and it will maintain a few elite schools for itself. Okay, brace yourself for this next one, religion. With Christianity ejected from the West, replacement religions have arisen. Greenism, by whatever name, is the dominant new religion, especially in Europe. Socialism remains a popular compliment. Man's soul abhors a vacuum. And there are religions in every way that matters. Or these are religions in every way that matters. They have clear dogmas, heretics, even inquisitors. Church and state have rejoined. Then there's philosophy. Philosophically, post-Western culture is anti-rational. 
postmodernism is flatly ridiculous. We'll use arguments to convince students that no argument really means everything, anything, rather. But it is firmly in place. Its cousins, critical theory and deconstruction, have combined with it to produce millions of surplus intellectuals who only know how to tear down <clears throat> and who despise the old ethic of production. Science? Well, science in post-Western civilization has a new epistemology. That is, it no longer believes that truth comes from rigorous testing and verification. Instead, truth comes from institutional consensus. Break with it and you'll lose your job. Knowledge and state have rejoined. As for the press, the purpose of the press in in post-Western civilization is to protect the people from bad information. This was necessitated by social media, and it will be tightened over time. Censorship is the new norm, and disgraceful intellectuals are lining up to defend it. Which brings us to money. He says, honest money is over. Money is now created in any amounts by state-aligned networks. Yes, Bitcoin and gold still exist, but they're either demonized or ignored. And as long as compliance continues, a cashless and fully controlled money system will be enforced combined with a social credit score. The Lords of Wall Street will either be eliminated in a night of the long knives or else will be given privileged seats at the table. So there you have it. There's the first outline of the new civilization under which we live. And whether we like it or not, he says, this is what now stands in the public square. Okay, now this doesn't mean that we're helpless, but this just means we've correctly assessed what we are up against. What we do next? Well, that'll be some discussion for the next few segments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I, uh, I, I'm i almost a little bit hesitant with what I'm going to share with you in this next segment here, just because this is going to be a cause of anxiety for some folks. And, and I'm going to temper that by saying if you have felt some anxiety as you have been grocery shopping lately, then you may have already worked your way through this or at least come to terms with it. You've, you've been able to deal with it, but... Have you noticed prices going up? Have you noticed empty spots on shelves? Have you noticed the breakdown in the supply chain? I was What was I reading earlier today? Um, U.S. automakers have missed out on $200 billion in sales this year. Do you know why? Because they can't get computer chips. They can't get uh, you know microchips and processors for the cars that they're supposed to be building. But you need to get ready. Carrie Lutz, who writes for the Financial Survival Network, says get ready for non-transitory inflation. Ten things about to shoot up in price. So, yeah, we've seen the prices go up. I'm starting to see people say, wow, I'm getting sticker shock. You know, I, I love a good ribeye steak. I loved them even when they were 10 bucks a pound, which I thought was outrageous. I used to be able to, you know, pick up, you know, a nice ribeye for, you know, five, six, seven bucks. Try 19 bucks a pound, 20 bucks a pound. I mean, it's great. You know, I love to have a steak as much as the next guy, but man, you know, filling out the loan paperwork is really starting to get me down. I just, I, I don't want to take the time to do it. 
So here are 10 things that are about to go up in price. Pay close attention. Plan accordingly. We'll start with electricity. According to Carrie Lutz, in 2020, 38% off all natural gas, 30, 38% of all natural gas used in the U.S. went toward generating electricity. Now, there are 1,793 gas-powered electric plants in the U.S. And while utilities generally buy most of their natural gas through long-term fixed-rate contracts, the low spot price that we experienced since 2015 has led to utilities increasing their gas spot purchases and decreasing their long-term contracts. So with natural gas recently nearing $5 and 5.5, let's see, $5.50 per um, mm BTUs, higher electric costs are baked into the cake. It's going to cost more to generate that electricity. In the past 12 months, natural gas prices rose over 130%. Now, assuming a prolonged period of increased gas prices, you're going to see electricity rates soon start to shoot higher. And here's one that I think we'll be feeling in the months ahead. Heat. It's about to get way more expensive to heat your home. About half the homes in the U.S. use natural gas for space heating and for hot water. Now, this sector alone was responsible for 15% of natural gas consumption in 2020. But for the same reasons listed as why electricity will be costing more, the decline of long-term fixed-price supply contracts, prices on heat will be higher. Here's one that will make everybody smile. Taxes. Unbeknownst to many people, their largest annual expenditure is taxes. It's not just direct taxes like income, state, or real estate, and so forth. It's also the indirect taxes levied by federal, state, and local governments upon a myriad of businesses and services that are hidden from consumer view. A large portion of your utility bill goes to pay state taxes. Your cell phone bill contains a number of federal, state, and local taxes. Tolls and other miscellaneous taxes are also part of the mix. And many of these governmental subdivisions employ expensive union-based labor. As inflation escalates, those employees will get automatic cost-of-living wage increases. This will increase already staggering pension costs. Therefore, governments across the board will be increasing their already high tax burden. And it will result in higher taxes on everything, even if federal income taxes don't go up. So get ready for a major upside surprise. The next thing that you're going to see shoot up in price will be transportation. A large part of our personal budgets are consumed by getting from point A to point B. Now the cost of doing this has risen and will rise even higher. With gasoline prices up a whopping 85% in the past 12 months, commuters are already feeling the bite. Politicians often increase gasoline excise taxes when seeking more revenue. Same with liquor excise taxes. And with electric vehicles expected to capture higher market share, these taxes will have to be raised to make up the difference. In addition, tolls will also increase to pay higher operating and labor costs in running and maintaining highways, bridges, and tunnels. Also, you will see the price of appliances going up. As chip shortages continue, raw materials costs rise and global labor costs take off to compensate for the near universal loss of purchasing power. So appliance appliance costs are going to go up greatly. Now, the cost of repairing household appliances have already gone up substantially, and that's because replacement parts are becoming scarce due to supply chain issues. In addition, 
poor economic conditions are reducing the number of outlets where appliances can be purchased. So if you're thinking of buying that new refrigerator, now is a good time. I know a lot of people have been looking for freezers actually for months. And it's pretty tough to find. Supply and demand. The more demand, the higher they're going to cost. Automobiles will also be going up in price. The prices of both new and used vehicles have increased greatly during the past 12 months. I had a friend, uh, Tyler, sent me some uh, screenshots of uh, new, new vehicles on the lot. And they were asking $15,000 above manufacturer-suggested retail price. Do you remember when car lots would get you in there? Hey, we're going to discount this by $5,000 below MSRP. No more. This is going to get expensive. Prices of both new and used vehicles going up, it's going to continue for a long time to come. And it's because a large portion of the cost of the automobile is labor and legacy costs. Virtually all auto workers are unionized, and they currently are or will currently be re- or will shortly be receiving cost-of-living adjustments. Many auto retirees receive cost-of-living adjustments as well, and for legacy automakers, their cost structure is a straight line higher. Food is going up in price. I think that's kind of where we started this discussion. Expect food prices, supply chain disruptions, and weather issues to drive food prices much higher in the months and years to come. There's a reason that the government excludes food prices from the consumer price index, and it's not because they're going down. Higher fuel costs will also result in higher food prices, as most modern farming techniques are energy-intensive, not to mention that virtually all food produced has to be shipped to market. Fertilizers and pesticides will go up right along with oil and natural gas prices. This brings us to interest rates. For nearly two generations, interest rates have fallen to some of their lowest levels in several millennia. And Kerry Lutz says uh, that's all coming to an end. The explosion of debt at every level, government, corporate, and individual, has been well documented. And he says low rates are always dependent upon Fed policy. However, there is a limit to runaway money printing, and at some point, probably rather than later, the Fed will have to make a decision between economy and currency. They're going to choose the currency, and then they're going to have to raise rates and counter massive debt defaults and a major deflationary cycle that will usher in an era of higher real rates. I'm going to put that in just plain English so that somebody like me can understand it. Credit has been very easy to get. And when central bankers expand the issuance of credit, when they make it simple for anybody to borrow money, to start a business or buy a home or buy a car or, you know, whatever you want to do, there are a lot of people who will very willingly wander into that trap and say, yes, sir, I will, I will be happy to take some of that easy money. But when the central banks contract the issuance of credit, in other words, when they restrict it and make it much more difficult for people to borrow money, How about the ones who took out loans, say, to start a business? What did they put up for collateral? Their house? Their business? So when they can't pay that debt back, who takes the collateral? Yeah, it's the banks. In other words, who can't lose? That's right. It's the banks. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are located in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call 703-4522. That's area code 435-703-4522. Why would you want to get a hold of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Well, let's assume that you are one of the thousands of people making the exodus from wherever you are coming from and you are ending up in the great state of Utah. Hey, if you're lucky enough to land in the Beehive State, you're going to find there is, there's a lot going on there. Beautiful scenery, uh, very healthy, and in many cases, uh, one of the more vibrant economies that you're going to find. But you'll also, gonna see, you'll also see that real estate is uh, it's pretty crazy. Prices are, are going up because demand is so high. Here's the bottom line. When you are looking for a home, you're going to have to be able to move quickly. In other words, you have to have your financing in order. This is where the Heather Turner team has decades of experience. They understand what the lenders need. They understand what you as a borrower need. And Heather can make this happen. Her NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I even have a handy email link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com that can get you in touch with her. So back to this article. This is from uh, Carrie Lutz. Non-transitory inflation is coming. Ten items that are about to shoot up in price. Have you noticed this? Electricity, heat, taxes, transportation, appliances, automobiles, food, interest rates. Next, he warns about precious metals. Now, for thousands of years, gold and silver have been considered real money. It's only since the advent of unlimited fiat currency that they've been forced to take a backseat to paper forms of wealth. Since 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window, that paper wealth orgy has continued on unabated. And Kerry Lutz says now it appears that the can has been kicked down the road as far as possible and the day of reckoning is nearly at hand. And the golden rule will again reign supreme. He who has the gold makes the rules. Now, whether the nominal price of gold increases or not, the real value is due to make a tremendous move forward. So, I don't know, some people may take that as, well, so, Brian, you're a precious metals bug, you know, you're a gold bug. I believe that uh, we are approaching a time where if there is, for instance, a currency collapse in the offing, and I think that's, that's reasonably possible, a person would be well-suited to have some kind of hard commodity that they can actually put their hands on. Because paper money is just paper that we believe is money. Most of the dollars that most people have to their name are nothing more than electrons in a computer somewhere. You can't put your hand on it. This is one of the nice things about gold and silver. I'm not saying they're the be-all, end-all, and that's the only thing you should have. But I would definitely say it would be wise for a person to have some. I think land is going to be another you know great commodity to have. Tools, training, food storage, you know, barterable goods. These are the kind of things that you would definitely want to have on hand. So if you see the prices of, of gold and silver shooting through the roof, just know. Some people saw this coming. Carry lots among them. And finally... 
Guns and ammo. Okay, that's not a surprise to anybody who's even remotely involved in the shooting sports. Since 2008, the demands for guns and ammunition has been nearly insatiable. And as the world's gotten deeper into an endless morass of debt and loss of freedom, U.S. sales of these essential self-defense products have catapulted forward. The new inflationary trend will increasingly weaken the ability of government to protect its citizens. Now, he says, as Americans, we've been lulled into a false sense of security. Well, the government can keep us safe. But moving ahead, that illusion is rapidly fading. Just witness the 2020 widespread urban riots. As more dangerous cities and states become the norm, people will increasingly ignore draconian gun control measures, and they'll take whatever steps are necessary to protect themselves and their families. It's going to be a glorious time to be a gun dealer. It already is. Now, Kerry Lutz says, for the most part, these trends are inexorable. As Nick Santiago is fond of saying, the trend is your friend until the end. Low consumer prices, low taxes, abundant consumer goods, low interest rates, and low energy prices are coming to an end. The only question is what you're going to do to protect yourself. Now, I know people who've been thinking about this and acting on this for quite some time. And I don't think there's a perfect one-size-fits-all approach that, well, if you just do this, you're covered. But, you know, some of the people who have gone to an off-grid situation where they've done solar or uh, geothermal heating and cooling of their homes, probably not a bad idea. I don't know what's going to work best in your situation. I've talked to a lot of people just in the last three or four days who have said, you know, I'm really thinking I'm going to build me a greenhouse. I would say do it. Do it sooner than later. And don't just build the greenhouse, but learn the skills to actually grow food in it. Got a good friend in the Cedar City area who has given great thought and and study to this. And this guy can grow stuff year-round. And for those who don't know, Cedar City has four actual seasons. They have a legit winter. But I've been to this guy's place, and I've seen fresh lettuce growing during the coldest times of the year. It can be done, but it takes knowledge and it takes a willingness to step up and make it happen. All right, I'm going to shift gears now. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about. Actually, two other things I wanted to cover. I don't know if you find yourself feeling like you're at your wit's end. Mentally, the strain that a lot of us are feeling is uh, it's becoming pretty hard to bear. I find myself regularly doing a reality check on myself. Okay, am I... Am I doing okay? Am I am I still tethered to reality? Am I am I am I struggling to to deal with reality as it comes to me? So if I'm doing this and I'm a pretty optimistic guy for the most part, it's it's a pretty safe bet that the other people are doing it as well. Annie Holmquist for intellectualtakeout.org has a terrific column about finding a way out when you're at your wit's end. She says, in the center of our office fridge hangs a poem called Wits End Corner by Antoinette Wilson. She says, it was discovered when our office was going through a difficult time, so it hangs on the fridge as a reminder of the storms we've weathered and as an encouragement for the storms we will most certainly face in the future. More than one employee has been caught looking at it while under great pressure or or overwhelmed rather by problems. But she says, unfortunately, problems are not the sole realm of our office. 
Everyone goes through difficulties, even as recent months show us, months filled with the overwhelming troubles of election uncertainties, disease, vaccine mandates, and the agonizing defeat of our military. So with that in mind, a look at Wits End Corner may be just the thing each one of us needs as we frantically scurry around wringing our hands and wondering what to do. Here's what the poem says. Are you standing at Wits End Corner, Christian with troubled brow? Are you thinking of what is before you, and all you are bearing now? Does all the world seem against you, and you in the battle alone? Remember at Wits End Corner is just where God's power is shown. Are you standing at Wits End Corner, blinded with wearying pain, feeling you cannot endure it, you cannot bear the strain? Bruised through the constant suffering, dizzy and dazed and dumb? Remember at Wits End Corner is where Jesus loves to come. Are you standing at Wits End Corner, your work before you spread? All lying begun, unfinished, and pressing on heart and head? Longing for strength to do it, stretching out trembling hands? Remember, at Wits End Corner, the burden bearer stands. Are you standing at Wits End Corner? then you're just in the very spot to learn of the wondrous resources of him who faileth not. No doubt to a brighter pathway your footsteps will soon be moved, but only at wit's end corner is the God who is able proved. That's a pretty cool poem. I've never seen it before today, but I love it. So Annie Holmquist says, look, are you walking around with a troubled brow carrying a load of cares? Then the suggestion, she says, here's pray. Does it seem like everyone is against you and you're the only one fighting for truth? Tell God about it. Are you pained either physically by sickness or emotionally through the loss of a job or a friend or perhaps because of your principles? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now she says, of course, a person's heart needs to be right with the Lord before such a recourse can be taken advantage of. An an individual needs to know how to pray. But fortunately, Scripture provides the map to get over both of those hurdles. Try starting in the Psalms. There really is nothing new under the sun. For those who have penned the Psalms seem to have known firsthand what it's like to deal with evildoers and in painful situations. Annie Holmquist says, We're not the first ones who've forgotten to use this powerful tool. In fact, she reminds us the American founders used prayer in the early days of their fight for independence. But the more distant that struggle became, the more they forgot prayer. We'll come back to her commentary just to the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I've been sharing this article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org, Finding a Way Out When at Your Wits End. And there's a marvelous poem in there at Wits End Corner. And it's, you know, some people may scoff at it, but I think there's a lot of wisdom when you are really feeling like, look, I've gone as far as I can go under my own strength. The answer... Annie Holmquist says, is to pray. And she points out, we're not the first people to forget that this is a very powerful tool. I like that she references the American founders 
early in the days of their fight for independence. And, and after even they secured that independence, they had to learn how to use prayer. And she uses the example of Benjamin Franklin reminding the Constitutional Convention delegates of this fact back in the summer of 1787, suggesting they return to that strategic plan. Listen to the wisdom in Ben Franklin's words. Quote, In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were insensible, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? End quote. I I just, I love Ben Franklin's wisdom. I know the guy was imperfect, but I think the man was, was truly striving. I think he was actually somebody who, whatever imperfections he had, he was moving in the right direction. Annie Holmquist says, Judging from the document which eventually came out of that convention in 1787, it seems that the founders' shift to prayer must have worked. So she asks, are you at your wit's end corner in this present world? Then it's time to try prayer. It's the easiest and most effective thing we can do to find relief for our burdens. I know that uh, this may seem like a really odd topic to be bringing up on a show like this. But I believe that uh, there is great legitimacy in the idea of, of taking these things to God and seeking help, whether it's on an individual basis. And I look, I think it's absolutely fine for people to pray, you know, for, for the nation, to pray for their community, to pray for elected leaders. That's not the same thing as endorsing everything they've done. It's not a big rubber stamp. Yep, it's okay with me. I do know this. God is not indifferent to what is happening in our lives. And in fact, when things are going well, that's usually, isn't that when we start to, to get the impression that, well, you know, I got this. I don't need your help. Thanks, but no, I got it. It's only when we're really in trouble, you know, that, that we really, oh man, you know, I think I probably better offer a very sincere prayer. So I think you might want to consider taking Annie Holmquist's advice here. If you find yourself at wit's end. And by the way, it, it helps even if, if you are, if you aren't the one who's struggling. For instance, uh, you know, do you, do you have friends? Do you have family? Do you know someone else who's struggling with illness, struggling with financial hardships, struggling with marriage difficulties, addictions, and so forth? I think there's something that's, that's very powerful that happens when you pray for other people. I think back a few years ago. Had some friends in in our our neighborhood who had a beautiful little brand new baby girl, six months old, and uh, she was sick. They couldn't figure out what it was. She just she was inconsolable. She was was clearly in pain. She could hardly stand to be touched, and they could not figure out what it was. 
and they ended up uh, having to to take her into the hospital. Mom was a nurse, so I mean she she had good care right there at home, but they could not figure out what it was, and they took her into the hospital. And uh, the the doctors were like, well, we think maybe that there's a cyst or something, a problem with her umbilical area. You know that she seems to be very tender around her, you know, umbilical, um, where, where her belly button would be. It it was getting very very dire. This child was getting sicker and sicker, and finally the doctors decided, you know what, we're going to have to go in and, and do some um, some surgery on her. Now keep in mind, that's a six-month-old. The stakes seem pretty high, especially when you're dealing with a little tiny like that. And I remember this friend reaching out and, and just saying, hey, um, just, just wanted you to know uh, our, our little girl is really sick. You know, she's headed into the hospital, and, you know, could could you please keep us in your prayers? And against my better judgment, normally if I'd have sat and thought about this, I'd have thought, okay, this is not the kind of thing that's appropriate for social media. But uh, on a whim, I just made a quick post on Facebook and said, look, um, I realize not everybody believes. I realize not everybody is going to resonate with this. But for those of you who are believers in the power of prayer, would you please exert your faith on behalf of my friend's little girl? And I heard back from my friends later that day as uh, they, they said, you know what, the doctors got in there and started doing this exploratory surgery. And what they found out, this six-month-old had a ruptured appendix. That's almost unheard of in children that young. I mean, look, you know, appendix is getting uh, infected and, and rupturing. That happens. There was a time where that was, you know, that's a, that's a very deadly, you know, consequence we take it for granted. It's pretty easy. What? Your appendix is hot? Uh, yeah, we'll take it out. You'll walk yourself to the car, you know, three hours later. It's, it's, we don't treat it like that big of a deal, but it's still, you know, it's a very life-threatening situation. But what was interesting to me was this, this friend and his wife talked about how, as, you know, I mean, try to put yourself in their situation. The, the, the desperation you must feel as a parent, watching your child get sicker and sicker in terrible pain and you can't tell what it is. They ran every test they could think of. Nobody was thinking that it could be appendicitis, much less a ruptured appendix. But they said they felt the prayers of other people being offered on their behalf. Now, I don't know how you explain that. Scientifically, are you going to be able to prove it? I mean, I know the doubters will say, well, if I can't see it or taste it or touch it, smell it, hear it, you know, I... Don't believe it. But these parents told told me later that they could feel the prayers of people. And we're talking complete strangers being exerted on their behalf. I'm not sure exactly how that works too. But I believe them when they say it. And I guess the reason I'm sharing this with you is don't underestimate or minimize the power of seeking help from God. We've got a pretty desperate situation ahead of us in in many ways in the sense that there are multiple crises that are all kind of converging and coming together and overlapping. And as difficult as some of the changes have been in the last year and a half, I think we have even heavier burdens that will be coming in the days ahead. And I don't say that because, oh, all is lost and our lives suck and nothing's going to be great. 
These are consequences that come from decisions that have been made over decades and have been carried out for a long time, and they're just they're not avoidable. We may not have made a lot of these decisions, but uh, we're, we're going to see the consequences that come. I'm not inclined to sit there and ask God, please take away these consequences and make our lives as simple and perfect and, you know, easy and comfortable as possible. Instead, I'm inclined to ask God, make me strong enough, courageous enough, and steady enough to weather the storms, whatever they may be, and to to be a source of strength or a source of reassurance to the people around me. Now, just know, there are people that I look to for a source of steadiness and, you know, and courage as, as the wind picks up in velocity and as the skies get darker and the temperature is dropping fast. There's no shame in admitting it's, it's, it's spooky what we see happening around us. And there seems to be a very real conflict brewing up right in front of us. And I don't think any of us are going to be able to sit this one out. There is no safe place to hide, but there is shelter if you're willing to reach out and seek some help from above. It's not going to keep you uh, completely from experiencing the storm, but it should be enough to get you through it and actually be a better person in the process. How could that be a bad thing, right? All right. Have a wonderful time sorting through my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. There's lots of great reading. You can spend hours digging deeper. This is The Brian Hyde Show.